Proverbs 22.6, we're in a, a series called Out of Context. If you haven't been with us, your first time with us or first time in a while, we're talking about the passages of Scripture, the stories, the sayings, and specifically verses that most Christians know, most Christians can quote or at least say the gist of them. But in a lot of cases, we are misusing Scripture when we quote those verses. We make them say things that the Scripture don't re- doesn't really say. So Proverbs 22, 6 is one of those in some cases. I want to start by just saying that I once upon a time knew a guy who knew more about parenting than anybody else I've ever known. And I really wish he would have written down, written a book because all of that knowledge that he had is now gone because he's gone. The guy I'm talking about is me before I had kids. I mean, I knew everything there was to know about raising kids. And I could, I could look at you if you were a parent at the time and go, okay, you're doing it all wrong. Let me tell you what you need to do. And then my first child was born and all that knowledge was just like, it was gone. And I was left, this is what I compare it to. From that day until today, being a dad is like the opening scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark which turns 40 this year, by the way. So every day, it's like every step I take, I'm setting off a different booby trap. For some reason, there's a boulder chasing me and some guy just stole my whip. That's what it feels like being a dad. You never really feel like you nail it. In my work, and my job, I don't always feel like I do a 100% great job, but there are plenty of times where I think, okay, that, that was good. I, I did a good job there. I never feel like that as a dad, ever. It's always like, well, I hope they don't write a book about me someday. Hope I didn't screw that up too badly. And maybe you feel the same way. Let me just give you an example from my own life just to show you the futility of Christian fathering. Uh, When when my kids were still pretty young, I I bought this very expensive, very nice Bible software program that I installed on my laptop. I still have it today. Uh, still use it for sermon preparation. When I first got it, I thought, I'm going to use this every morning for my devotional time. And so, Still to this day, I get up really, really early and, and open the Word of God. It's the first thing I do. And back then, I was always the first person awake. So I'd wake up. The house was completely dark. Uh, everybody else is still in bed. I'd boot up my computer, and then I'd turn on that program, and it would play this little jingle. And I would have the volume down really low. So I thought, you know, chances are they're not hearing this. But if they are, if it wakes them up, I bet what they're thinking is, ah, that's the sound of our Father communing with the Lord so that he can equip himself to be our defender, our protector, our guide who leads as the man of the house, as the head of the home. Yeah, I literally had these thoughts. I'm not joking. Y'all are laughing, you're smirking, but that's, those, those are things that actually went through my head. And then uh, several years ago, t- kids were both teenagers and I was sitting on the couch. It was one of those bad weeks, a lot of things going on. I had to catch up. And so I opened my laptop and decided to do some sermon work there at the house. And I, I hit the Bible software program, the little jingle plays. One of my kids, I won't tell you which one, says, there's that stupid song. I hate that song. It wakes me up every morning. What is that? So yeah, yeah, that's, that's being a Christian parent today. Uh, because we're hanging on by our fingernails, because we are just grasping for hope, We cling to certain verses of Scripture and hope that that gives us some kind of a guarantee that things are going to work out okay. And one of those is Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So we look at that and we say, okay, I can't go wrong. 
as long as when they're little, I bring them to the church and I get them dedicated in front of the church and, and I bring them to VBS and I bring them to Sunday school. And, and when they're old enough to understand, I make sure they get baptized, you know, they're going to turn out fine. I, I don't know what I'm worried about because I've got a guarantee right here from the Lord. Last week, we talked about the prosperity gospel and how that leads so many Christians astray. This is the Christian, pro- this is the parenting prosperity gospel. It says, as long as you give your kids over to God mentally, God's going to take care of them and they can't possibly go wrong. And yet we know, I mean, sad to say there are people in this room who could stand up and testify and talk about how their kid, their child has gone in the wrong direction, maybe still is headed down a wrong path. There are parents in this room whose hearts are broken for their children and they've done everything they know to to send their kids off in the right direction, and yet somehow that child went the wrong way. We know, maybe maybe this is your story. You grew up in a family where all the the adults, all the kids grew up to be good, solid citizens, tax-paying, child-rearing, law-abiding, solid Christian men and women, and then that one black sheep who drifted off into addiction or into promiscuity or rebellion or maybe even law-breaking. Or maybe you know of a family, and maybe this is your family, where there was a child who was raised and got baptized at an early age and, and went through youth group and went to all the retreats and all the denows and all the camps and mission trips. And yet today you talk to them and they're like, no, I'm not a Christian anymore. That's not really for me. I've, I've decided it, it, it wasn't right. So what happens in those situations? Is that, does that mean that the parents didn't do all they could? Did they not raise up their children in the way they should go? Or did God's promise somehow fail? Well, that's the first question we need to ask is, is this a promise? And you might say, well, of course it is, Jeff. It's in the Bible. And yet that betrays this whole idea of you need to read Scripture in context. Now, up to now in this series, what we said is make sure you know what the verses around this say. Make sure it agrees with the rest of Scripture. But here I'm going to introduce another rule into this. You need to make sure you're understanding the genre of Scripture you're reading. And genre is kind of a fancy word. Most of you know it. All of you know what it means, though. All of you experience this in life. Just give you an example. If somebody comes up to you today, hands you a book and says, I read this last week, couldn't put it down. It's the best mystery novel I've ever read. You won't believe who did it in the end. You're going to thank me for it. Here you go. You take it home and you read it. You're not going to be disappointed to find it's not a biography of Calvin Coolidge. It's not a book about pre-calculus. It's not a book about geography. You know the difference between fiction and nonfiction, between a novel and a textbook. Same time, you're not going to be disappointed when you open it up and it's not lines that are all the same length. They all all have the same number of syllables because you know the difference between poetry and prose. And you know the rules. When you're reading a book of fiction, things happen that aren't reality. In the first chapter, a guy ends up, is found with a, a knife through his chest. You don't weep and mourn. You know this is just a story. There are actually different genres of, script, uh, of literature in the Bible. And a lot of people don't realize that, even a lot of Christians. But we do deep down inside, don't we? If you've ever read the book of Revelation, I hope you understand that the things that John sees are symbols because that's an apocalyptic kind of writing. It's, it's the way they wrote when they were, they were essentially writing in code to say, here, here are certain symbols that, that portray a spiritual reality. For instance, in Revelation 13, 8, when it says that Jesus is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth, it doesn't mean that you and I worship a dead baby sheep. 
We know that's a symbol of something really important, really beautiful, that Christ laid down his life for us. In a little while, we're going to celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. But on the other hand, when we read other books of the Bible, like Acts, when it says that Peter was rescued from prison by an angel, we know that really happened. When, when Luke or Matthew or Mark or John say that Jesus healed a blind person or walked on water or rose from the dead, that's not symbolic, that's real. That's because that's the kind of literature it is. It tells the truth and not symbols, but literal truth. Proverbs is a different kind of literature. It's the only one of its kind in the Bible. But there are Proverbs outside of the Bible. You know that, right? Raise your hand if you ever heard the saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. You ever heard that? That is a proverb. It is a statement of general truth. You don't live by it. It just simply means that if you love somebody and you're parted from them for a couple of weeks or for a month, you realize even more intensely how much you love them because you're like, life's just not the same without them here. But it doesn't mean, oh, well, if I really want this girl to love me, I'm going to stay as far away from her as possible. Guys, for some of you, that may be good advice, but uh, that's not really what that proverb means. Um, Tell you another example. Cats have nine lives. I hope nobody here takes that one literally, okay? If you do, don't blame me because I am not speaking from experience when I say cats are very resilient, right? They, 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 they kind of cling to life. They survive some stuff that you probably think they shouldn't. Uh, but that's all it means. It's a statement of general truth. Proverbs are wisdom sayings that come from the heart of God. There's, it's God saying, here's how the world works. If you want to live a life of wisdom where you make good choices, these are some things you need to know about life. So let me show you, for instance, the very one after the one we just read, Proverbs 22, 7, verse 7 says, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Is that a command from God? Is that a promise? Well, no, because we know that, that God doesn't always want uh, rich people to rule over poor people. God doesn't want bankers, for instance, to treat those who borrow money from them as slaves. He's just saying, in general, that's the way the world tends to work. In general, it's hard to be poor. It's really hard if you owe someone money. So if you're a person of wisdom, you're going to manage your resources well and try to stay out of poverty. You're going to try to stay out of debt. And by the way, interpreting scripture by scripture, if we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, when we know someone who's in poverty, we do what we can to bring them out of it. When we know someone who's buried in debt, we do what we can to help them. That's how you use the Proverbs. So Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. That is not a promise from God. That is a proverb. That is a statement of wisdom that is simply saying, if God gives you children and you want them to walk the path of righteousness, they can't do it on their own. They're going to need your help. They're going to need for you to start early and train them up in the way that they should go. It's sort of like if you're teaching your child to drive. You don't just hand them the keys and say, okay, you'll figure it out. No, you, you, you drive alongside them. You ride alongside them. You, you guide them until you set them free. But it's still their decision. You can do all the training you want, and your child may just drive off the next day and, and wrap his pickup truck around a telephone pole. That's not something you can control. And we as Christian parents, we can't control the choices our kids make when they leave our home. All we can do is the best we can do to raise them up in the way that they should go. So two questions the rest of our time together. Number one, what does it mean to train up a child in the way he should go? What does the Bible actually say about that question? 
Number two, what should we do when our children walk away from the way we raised them? What about those of us in this room who right now we've got a child who's breaking our heart? How do we respond? So those are the two questions we'll talk about. Let's take the first one first. What does the Bible say about raising up your children in the way that they should go? Well, four things. I can kind of sum up the teaching of Scripture on parenting in these four commands. Number one, treasure your kids. I don't have to sell any of you on this one, but the Bible is very insistent that children are a gift. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Psalm 139 very famously says that every one of us was was created by God, woven together in our mother's womb, that God knew every day we would live before we were even born. So you think about it, if God takes that kind of intricate care to create each human being, that means the day you become a parent, your whole life changes. You've been entrusted with something that comes before your job, that comes before your hobbies, that comes before everything else except your relationship with God, that God someday is going to hold you accountable for what did you do with this precious gift that I gave you that means more to me than life itself. Treasure your children. Number two, discipline your kids. Proverbs 13, 14 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. It's one of four verses in the Proverbs where the, where the term the rod is used. And I used to think that that was meant to be taken literally, that the only way, the best way to discipline your kids was with physical pain. I really believed before I became a parent that, uh, that I had music coming out of my head, that it would just start playing spontaneously. And the other thing I thought... I'm glad you woke up. The other thing I thought is, you know, whatever your kid does, a good smack on the bottom will solve every problem. Because that worked with me, right? All my dad had to do was just pull off his belt. I'm like, okay, what do you want? I'll do it. But we've, we learned early in life, early in parenting, Carrie and I, that sometimes spanking doesn't work. Uh, we got to a point where we're like, okay, this is just actually making her angrier. So where do we go from here? And so I look at that, at those passages about the rod, and I, I realize it, it doesn't mean that this is the only way to discipline. It just means you have to discipline. You have to find some way of making sure your child knows that bad decisions have consequences. You cannot let them get off scot-free. You cannot let them get away with anything or else they will continue down that path. It is your job to discipline your kids. Carrie and I literally had to have strategy meetings. I mean, I'm not joking. We would get together and we'd be like, okay, okay, what we were doing, what was working last week, it's not working anymore. What are we going to do now? Okay, you're going to try, okay, let's try, okay, let's go out. All right, team, let's go. And we'd go. And, we, and that would work for a while, and then we'd have to get together again. But you have to do that as a parent. That's your job. It's not the fun part of your job. Mom, dad, if you enjoy that part of your job, seek counseling, and I'm not kidding, because if you enjoy that, you've got some other issues that need to be dealt with. But you do that because no one else has that position and someone must do it. Number three, understand your kids. See, I've, I read a lot of Christian parenting books when my kids were little. And almost all of them, the main subject was, here's how to discipline your kids. Here's how to maintain control of your home. Here's how to steer them in the right direction. And that's all valuable. And many of them were excellent, but no one told me, no one really told me, yeah, but you've got to really understand your kids. You've got to, you've got to learn to think like they think. In Colossians, 
book of Colossians is written to a group of Christians. Paul's telling them, here's how to live as a disciple. The first half of the book is, this is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And the back half of the book is, okay, let's put this into practical sense. So Paul, in Colossians 3.21, he gets to, okay, here's my word of advice to parents. And he doesn't say, okay, mom, dad, you better maintain control of your home. You better make sure your, your kids know your boss. He doesn't say that, although that's true. He says in Colossians 3.21, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What does he mean, don't provoke your children? Does that mean I shouldn't ever make my kids mad? If I'm not making them mad once in a while, I'm not doing my job. No, he says, don't provoke them lest they become discouraged. That, that second half of the sentence is key. It means that you need to care absolutely as much about their heart as you do their behavior. You need to understand your kids. You need to be able to identify them. You need to be able to encourage them and bring out the best in them. Not just, you're not, it's not just about controlling them. It's about having compassion on them. In fact, Psalm 103 verse 13 says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God just takes it for granted that we're going to have compassion on our kids. And the word compassion literally means you feel what they feel. Your heart is their heart. You put yourself in their shoes. You understand them. And a lot of Christian parents don't do that. I've been in rooms full of Christian parents where we're all talking about our kids. These are, these are parents of teenagers, right? And they're all talking and they're sharing stories about, here's what I did to lay down the law. Here's what I did to, to make sure they knew I was boss. And it's, it gets kind of a one-upsmanship kind of thing. It's sort of like, you know, fight cl- Christian fight club, right? We're talking about, here's, here's how I took her down, you know? And, and I get it. I get it. You do have to be in control. But in, when I'm in those situations, I want to raise my hand and go, yeah, but does your, does your kid know that you understand them? That your kid is, does your kid know that you're actually on their side? That you're not the enemy who's trying to crush them? You're actually, you're actually for them? So when our daughter, our oldest, when she hit junior high, all of a sudden everything changed. Because we had this child who, I mean, ever since we got through the, the terrible threes, don't let anybody fool you. The threes are as bad as the twos. Once we got out of the terrible threes, all of a sudden she became this almost dream child. You know, this adorable little brown-eyed angel who told us everything, uh, who, who loved Jesus, who wanted to be a missionary, who wanted to hang out with daddy because he did ministry, who just laughed and talked and made us laugh and, and was intelligent and, and spiritually precocious. And she went from that to all of a sudden, almost overnight, she was sullen and she was withdrawn and she was angry and sarcastic and she didn't tell us anything she was thinking and she didn't seem to have any interest in the things of God. And we were just terrified because we didn't know how this had happened or what to do. Now, at the time, we were living in Houston. Uh, we, had, we had her in a junior high that was very highly rated. We knew she was getting a good ed- education, but but we also knew this was a huge school with a lot of big, really tough-looking kids. We knew she was scared every day. Uh, so part of us was like, well, you know, maybe we should get her out of that environment. Now, I was against that. My whole attitude was she needs to tough it out, right? This is the way life is. You got to be ready. You got you to handle situations. You got to handle things that scare you. You got to toughen up. And Carrie was, was saying, I get that, Jeff, but, you know, our, our daughter's floundering. She's in crisis. Shouldn't we intervene in some way? And after two years of tough it out, didn't seem to work. 
heading into eighth grade, we said, let's try something different. And so we decided, let's take her out of this school, put her into a small private Christian school. Now, we couldn't afford that. I actually had to sell my car, and that, that would be enough to maybe pay for one year's tuition. But we thought, you know, we're at a point of desperation. Let's do what we have to do. Um, and, and in fact, my wife and my daughter, they went around checking schools out, and the one they chose was an hour away from us, out in spring where her mom lives. And I thought, well, this is crazy. Why are you going to drive in Houston traffic an hour each way uh, when there are perfectly good schools near us? But then again, I was the one who said, tough it out. So, you know, I figured, okay, let me just let them decide this time. And that year turned everything around for us. Didn't solve everything. We still had a lot of room to grow and still do. But what happened was, and it's not that it was a small private Christian school either. I mean, there, there are advantages to small private Christian schools, advantages to big public schools. I'm not arguing either way for that. What made the difference in our daughter's life was the hour spent in a car going to school and the hour coming home every single day. And God knew what he was doing. Because if it would have been dad driving her to school every day, here's what would have happened. Dad would have found talk radio or sports radio or, or KSBJ, and, and Kaylee would have sat looking at her phone, and we would have ridden in silence. But no, Carrie spent those hours every day learning who this girl was, because she wasn't the girl we raised anymore. She'd become someone different. So Carrie had to figure out, had to investigate what makes her tick. What is she afraid of? What is she excited about? What are her dreams? What are her hopes? What is this music she listens to now? What is it about? Why does she like it? And at, by, by the time that year was about halfway done, those two had become so bonded, and they still have this incredible friendship. Understand your kids. Do the hard work of getting down to the bottom. Don't be the typical parent who says, I don't know, they're just, they're just weird now. They'll grow out of it. Learn your kids. Learn what they're doing, what they're about. Number four, pastor your kids. Yes, pastor your kids. You are called to that ministry. The day God brings a child into your house, you become a pastor. Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're training, whatever your training might be, your job in their lives is the same as my job is in your life. I don't get to decide whether you follow Jesus or not. I don't get to decide whether you make good choices or not or how much you give your allegiance to him. All I can do alongside the other leaders of this church is present an environment that encourages, that inspires, that hopefully gets you on your feet following Christ. And that's your job as a parent. In the book of Deuteronomy, book of Deuteronomy, you may not know this, is Moses' last words to the people of Israel where he says, I'm about to die. Joshua's going to take you across the promised land and you're going to conquer that land and, and start a new nation. Now, here's what you need to do. And here's what he says to parents. He says, it's all on you, parents. Deuteronomy eleven nineteen. you shall teach them. That is the laws of God. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. As Ephesians 6, 4 says, bring them up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. Moses doesn't say, bring them, bring them to the tabernacle once a week, one week out of the year, VBS, they'll be fine. No, he says, and, and he doesn't say, you know, have a night once a week where you sit down and you know, maybe you watch The Chosen and you discuss it or, you know, you have a devotional around the dinner table. He says, when you wake up in the morning, when you're walking along the road, when you're sitting at home, when you put them down for bed, you take advantage of every opportunity you have to convey faith to them, to show them 
how compelling, how triumphant, how heroic, how inspiring, how fulfilling a walk with Christ is. No, you can't choose faith for your kids. But don't waste your opportunity. Don't say, well, I just want them to make their own decision. You don't do that about oral hygiene. You make your kids brush their teeth. You don't do that about education. You send them to school whether they want them to go. I hope you send them to school. Why would you do that with the most important decision of their lives? You are their pastor. You are the biggest, you are the biggest and most important influence in their lives. Don't squander that. Make sure they know. Your kids should know. Here's how my mom and dad came to know Christ. Here's, here's what they feel is their calling as believers. Here's what they feel they do in the kingdom of God. Here's what they're passionate about when it comes to following Christ. Here's, here's their favorite story in the Bible. Here's the parts of the Bible they really enjoy. Here's, I, I've seen them giving money to people who are struggling. I've seen them being extra generous to somebody who needs help. I've seen them share their faith. I've seen them comfort people who are hurting. I've seen my dad repent of sin and grow. I've seen my mom confess things she's done wrong and get right before the Lord. They should see real Christianity in you. Don't waste that opportunity because it only lasts so long. So what happens once that opportunity is passed? You've got a teenager who doesn't listen to you anymore. You've got a, an adult child who's headed off in the wrong direction. What, what can we do as believers? What can we do? I know there are people in this room who are in that position and probably far more than I know. So let me just give you my word. This is not God's word. This is my opinion as, as your pastor. Two things I would say to you in that situation. Number one, don't blame yourself. I know, I know you want to say, oh, if I'd only done this, if I'd only done that, trust me, every parent who ever lives can look back and think of things they could have done differently, but it's not your fault. Every human being has to make their own decision, whether to follow Christ, whether to do his will, whether to walk in wisdom and righteousness, or to go their own way. It is not your fault. You're in good company here. There are people in this room, there are people all through this church who they've got that one child or those two children who they're deeply praying for, who their hearts are breaking for. You are not alone. And you're in good company in the scriptures, by the way. You know that Samuel, one of the godliest men who ever lived, he had two sons. Both of them were crooks. David, the greatest king Israel ever had, had one son who raped his half-sister, another son who literally overthrew King David and became king. They had a, broke out a civil war because his son betrayed him. Aaron, the, the first priest of Israel, he had two sons that were literally killed by God because they were so sinful. Don't even get started on Jacob's children. I mean, you, you want to see a dysfunctional family? Read the book of Genesis and see what happened in that family, the, the very man who Israel was named for. And think about this. John chapter 7 says that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. So if our job as Christian parents is to raise up our kids in such a way that they would believe in Jesus, does that mean that Mary was a bad Christian mom because her, bro her sons didn't believe in the Son of God, their own brother? I don't think so. Don't blame yourself. This is not your fault. Number two, love them. What can you do when your kids rebel? You can love them. And you might say, well, of course I love them, Jeff. I believe you. But my question is, if you've got a rebellious child, would they say that? Would they say, yeah, they, he loves me. She 
loves me. They love me more than life itself. See, I know this. I know, I know what it's like when your kids make decisions you don't agree with. And they've gotten past that point when they're too big, they're too old to make them do what you want them to do. And they make these decisions and you're disappointed in them. And there's a part of you that's like, okay, I want you to know how disappointed I am. I want you to know how much you've broken my heart because hopefully that will draw you back. That will win you back and and cause you to head back in the right direction. And and my question is, if you've got one of those kids who's, who's headed in the wrong direction, do they feel the disappointment or do they feel the love? So think about, think about two women, two young women. These are not real people. It's total, totally hypothetical. Think about two women. Let's call them Jill and Dorothy. And both of them have this in common. They were raised in Christian homes, got baptized in an early age, grew up in youth group, went to D-Now, went to mission trip, went to youth camp, and then somewhere along the lines took a different path. And now they're living in a way that is absolutely flagrantly unbiblical. Uh, Their parents are just flabbergasted how they could make choices that they're making. You talk to either one of these young women and they'll say, yeah, I'm, you know, Christianity that I grew up in that, but that's not me anymore. If you talk to Jill and you say, so what's your relationship like with your parents? She'll say, I don't have a relationship with my parents. You know, they'll never forgive me for the choices I've made and the way that I'm living now. They'll never accept who I really am. And, you know, whenever we get together, all we do is fight. All they want to do is just criticize me so I don't go around anymore. I guess one of these days, one of them's going to pass away and I'll get a phone call and I'll have to decide whether I'm actually going to go to the funeral or not. And then you talk to Dorothy and you ask her the same question and she'll say, you know, surprisingly, we have a great relationship. I know they don't agree with the way I live and I know they're praying that, that I, you know, the Lord will save me and I'll come back. Uh, but the truth is whenever we're together, I just enjoy being with them. They're just glad to see me. We laugh a lot. We, we catch up. I know they love me more than anything. Um, you know, it's, their house is always gonna be home for me because no matter what happens, I know that's the one place on earth where I'm totally and completely loved. Now, I want to ask you something. One of these days, when both Dorothy and Jill, when they both come to the end of themselves, they come to the point where the decisions they've made, the choices they've made to follow their own path lead to a dead end. And this always, always happens. That's the one rule about idolatry. Whenever you worship anything other than the Lord himself, it always leads you to heartbreak and disappointment at some point. And when that happens, which one of these two women is more likely to say, I know what I need. I need to go back to the faith of my father. I need to go back to the gospel I heard at my mother's knee. I need to come back to Jesus. Which one? And you might say, okay, Jeff, I know where you're getting. I know what you're getting at, but this is all just your opinion. And yes, I I agree. And maybe some of you know of some, some Jill out there who in spite of a terrible relationship with her Christian parents, still came to know Christ because the gospel is tenacious, because God's grace is amazing. And here's the good news. Here's the really good news for you as parents. No matter how bad you and I may mess up or fall short, and we will, God loves our kids more than we ever possibly could, and he will never stop pursuing them with his love and his grace. But that's just the point I'm trying to make to you. What is the gospel story? What is the story of scripture? Because the truth is you and I, at some point in our lives, we were Jill, we were Dorothy. We ran away from home. 
We disgraced our family. We broke our father's heart. And what did he do in response? Did he put up a wall and say, okay, you got some explaining to do? You need, you've got some, some making up to do? Did he, did he write a book full of rules that says, okay, here are the obstacles, here are the hurdles you have to climb before you can be acceptable to me again? After what you've done, here's what you have to do to pay. No, that is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is good news. That's what the word gospel means. It's the good news that in spite of all we've done, he chases us. He chases us. And he won't drag us home by our hair. But if we're ready to turn home, he'll receive us back. In fact, he came in the form of a man named Jesus. He died to make it possible for us to come home again. He told us that great story about a, a child who did run away from home and break his father's heart and disgrace his family. And when he, these are the words of Jesus, came to his senses and said, man, even the slaves in my father's house are living better than I'm living. I'm going to go home. I'm going to be one of his workers. And the father saw him from a distance and went running to him. Went running to meet him. And that's our father. That's the God we trust in. That's the love we should be showing to every single person who's out on their own, doing things their own way. That's the message they should get from us. Because God says to them, as he said to us, I love you and I want you to come home.